0: listening to The Vint Podcast, bringing you expert interviews, alternative market insights, and exclusive access to the world of wine and spirits investing. Enjoy the show.
1: Hello, and welcome back to another episode of The Vint Podcast. My name is Billy Galenko, and we are without Brady this week. He is gallivanting around the Greek Isles somewhere. You will hear him at the end of this episode, though, because we had pre-recorded an interview with Nick Jackson, MW. Nick is both a wine educator as well as a wine merchant. So we have a great discussion with him about his two books, Beyond Flavor and Beyond Flavor 2, that discuss identifying wines and varietals by their structure rather than aromatic or flavor profiles, which is a really interesting conversation. We also discuss different wine trends with him in popular regions as well as some of his favorite wines. So definitely tune in for that great interview at the end of this episode. But before that, we have some Vint company updates, as well as another short interview with our newest team member, Dylan Sykes, that we had teased last week. We get to hear more about his background, you know, kind of how he made it to Vint, and also some of his passions outside of work, including tennis and his YouTube channel. So we have a great conversation there as well. But before we get to those things, a couple of quick Vint updates. First, we have a collection coming out this week the Pomerol Rarities Collection. It is a very exciting collection, mainly because it's just only Petrus and Lepan which for those of you who know, those are both wines from Pomerol. They're both mostly Merlot. And in Petrus's case, it's exclusively Merlot. These are two of the most expensive wines in Bordeaux. They're two of the most expensive Merlots in the world. And the interesting part about both of them is they're just made in, in minuscule quantities. Pen. It's made the number of cases I think is only in you know in the hundreds, whereas you know Petrus gets into the lower thousands, but it's it's very small compared to say Right Bank or Left Bank Bordeaux, sorry, which can be in the sixteen to twenty thousand cases a year, whereas combined Le Pen and Petrus are under three thousand. So, so that's really exciting. Um, basically, these are again are examples, kind of like DRC or some of these other ones that are just extremely hard to acquire these wines. So not only you know, do they appreciate or have historically appreciated over time, but there's just very little of these wines on the market. So we worked really hard to source some great vintages, a few vintages of each. And yeah, we're really excited for this to go live. And it's going to go live on 9-27, September 27th at 12 noon Eastern time, 9 a.m. Pacific time. Also this week, we have a webinar where we will basically walk you through the event platform, give a little bit more background on. Why Vint was created, the problem we're solving in the market in terms of wine investment and wine, you know, historically how wine investment has happened and what we're doing to kind of bring it into the next century. We'll give you a little background into our sourcing process, our process for exiting wines, and also a little bit more information on how we compile our our thesis and other materials that help support each collection. That will be on Thursday, 929 at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time. So Tune in for that. That will be me and Adam, our Director of Wine, me our Senior Wine Specialist, and then Nick, our CEO, will also be joining us to help explain the platform. So tune in. I will put the link to the webinar in the meet, into the podcast notes for this episode. So we're looking forward to having everybody join us for that as well. But now let's move on to meeting Dylan Sykes. All right. Without further ado, welcome Dylan to the podcast.
2: Thanks for having me on. I'm I'm excited to be part of the Vint team, and I feel special now that you guys decided me to have on the podcast too. Like I listen to podcasts all the time, but I don't think I've ever actually been on one myself.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, so you do have your your YouTube channel, which we referenced last week, and for the for the listeners, I guess we we have our internal Slack, and then once you join the company, you can read old Slack. So. Dylan got to see all of us talking about how we should subscribe so we could convince him to join the company. So
2: yeah, no, it was funny because I was just kind of going through and seeing like what's been talked about in the past and just kind of wasn't necessarily snooping for myself. But then I saw my little logo there for Dope Plays. and like, oh, hey, hey, that's me. And I was, I thought that was pretty cool. You guys all subscribed before I joined. and Nick had a little blurb there. He's like, hey, yeah, we're trying to get this guy in. If you subscribe, it might help him join. And I was like, oh, those, these guys are really nice. That's super cool.
1: <laughs> yeah, so I mean, needless to say, Dylan has a great background and we were really excited to have him join the team. Like they, they've been recruiting him for a while. Do you want to share a little bit about what you've where you were before, what you've kind of done and what you're yeah, excited about with us?
2: Sure. So I guess I'll start from the beginning. I went to Christian Newport University. I played tennis there as well on the varsity team, hence my interest in tennis. I got a computer science degree. Computer science kind of came out of the woodworks. I didn't really know anything about coding kind of going into college, but I remember Googling top paid careers besides doctors and lawyers, and they're like, (laughs) be a software engineer. So I was like, all right, guess I'm doing this because my dad said he's not paying for an education that doesn't make money, you know, (laughs) very, very in a boomer mindset, I guess. But if you want to say it that way, but it, it kind of set me up for success. And so then I went to a startup company after college, it's called SingleCom. They did a call center software and we, it was me and a bunch of other young devs. We got to learn a ton of AWS experience, Amazon Web Services, for those who are not familiar, basically just a lot of cloud computing and microservices and some technical jargon like that. And I was there for about two and a half years, COVID hit, and it was a startup company as well. And so we got furloughed and couldn't quite wait for the pandemic to end to get a new job. And no one really knew it was going to last two plus years. So we were like, oh, maybe a couple of weeks, we'll come back. And after the first week, I'm like, you know what? I still need a paycheck. And so I started looking around, found Capital One. And I was at Capital One for about two and a half years. And during my time at Capital One, Nick, the CEO here at Vent, I'd, I'd known him for a while. I've known him probably since middle school. We used to play tennis and travel to tournaments together when we were younger but he would message me on LinkedIn and be like, hey, I got this wine company. You want to come join? And I was like, I don't know yet. I kind of just got to Capital One. I was, was like, no, I'm, I'm happy where I'm at. And I say about every two to three months, a little message would pop up in my inbox. being be Nick King. Hey, you want to come join my wine company? No, not yet. Thanks for the offer, though. Two, three months. every. He's consistent. Very, very persistent, which I liked. And eventually, he caught me at the right time where I kind of was a little not really sure of where my future lied with Capital One. And I was kind of like looking for something else at the moment, not actively job searching at the moment, but then Nick messaged me and I was like, you know what? Yes, let's, let's have lunch. Let's talk. And so Nick came in and I think he had messed up his leg at one point. So he hobbled into first watch (laughs) and I was like, Nick, are you okay? And he was like, yeah, I just, you know, twisted my ankle doing something. I can't remember exactly what he did, but we talked for about an hour, hour and a half. And then I started to get to meet Patrick and I met Andrew and we did a couple interviews and then it, they're like, hey, here's an offer. And I was like, okay, wow. It, it happened so quickly, honestly, from that first meeting with Nick, that it was kind of like a blur, but it was my first experience, I guess, quitting a company and giving like a two week resignation. I like, had never done something like that before. And so it a little stressful on that end, but I'm very happy to be here. And you guys seem like you guys have something really good going here.
1: Yeah, no, that's. I will say Nick is persistent. Yeah, I think that was after one of his uh, softball injury. He was trying to (laughs) leg out a a single in softball, which is very, very Nick competitive to the the most. (laughs) No, that's that's cool. Yeah, I guess it it does happen. It probably seemed quick on your side, but they had been waiting for you to like agree for a long time. So I think it was like they had all the stuff laid out for us. So, but that's cool that you're able to come from Capital One, which is also kind of a. I mean obviously it's a financial company. I I think it's funny that you call it Nick's Wine Company because I think that's what most people remember, but internally right. he hypes on, harps on us regularly that it's a finance company. You know, we're not a wine company. We just happen to, you know, have wine as our investment asset. So, <laughs>
2: I and mean, I think that's come funny. very more apparent this first week. I've done a bunch of onboarding activities, went through what is Vint, what is our culture, got a breakdown of how the business works and Now in my head, it's like, okay, this is a finance company. This is, you want to think of it kind of like any other investment company that you would have, but originally it was Nick's wine company in my head. And I didn't know anything else about it. I'm like, yeah, Nick's got this wine company. I don't really know what it does, but I trust Nick as a person. I've known him for a long time. seems like he's got some good devs on the team. And so I didn't really know anything at first. And so people would ask me, they're like, Dylan, you're, you're quitting your job at Capital One. You sure you want to do that? Like it's a very stable job, great benefits you're going to this wine company, tell me about it. And I literally tell them like, I probably should have more information about this before I have accepted a job here, but I don't I don't know much, but give me another week or two and I'll t- let you guys know. And I kind of felt like I was kind of jumping into the deep end here and just kind of sink or swim kind of thing. But I had the trust in Nick that he's not just bringing me on to some, some random company that's not actually a real thing or something. So I had trust in him and I didn't really know what it was. I really didn't not until like probably last week that I have a really good understanding of what you guys do. And you're really gearing towards and focused on investors and trying to make investors have the best return for their money. And I think you guys have a really good business plan, honestly.
1: Yeah, no, that's, that's really interesting. I think that's a, that's the part that I always find fascinating about the the technical side of, you know, whether it be development in general or just like our software is like you, I mean, to, to join our company in general, you don't need to necessarily know about wine or wine investing aside from like the wine team, like me and Adam. So you can join without, you know, if you understand the the people you're with and you know, the, the offer works, but I, I think it, it is cool that like I had the same kind of, I didn't, I only knew Nick for about two months when I quit my job and trusted them to join, but, right. uh, but uh, they they do have this like, you know, you know, personality and then, you know, they're they're good guys. And then once you learn more about the product and like what we're doing, it's like, oh, you know, it's very well thought out and everything is like very, very carefully planned. So it's kind of interesting to have you see that from the inside rather than getting it full in from the outside.
2: Yeah, no, absolutely. And Patrick is such a good guy too. I, I probably spent most of my time talking with Patrick and he seems like he really knows what he's doing. I think he's just more happy to have more engineers on the team. So he's not doing all the work himself. But I mean, I think me and I talked last week and I was looking for wine recommendations because I'm personally, I've never been a wine drinker. I just never, never thought of that as a thing. Maybe I'm still what is it, immature in my my, my palate. is still very immature. I'm still drinking Bud Lights and stuff. I'm going to have a drink on the afternoon and things like that. But I think slowly over time, I feel like maybe I'll become more of a quote-unquote air quotes here connoisseur a wine connoisseur <laughs> and you're giving me a smile here because you got all the knowledge and you're like you don't even know what it takes probably to become a sommelier and things like that
1: <laughs> no no I'm when I was your age you know my, my mid-20s I didn't really take my my sommelier exams till I was 26 27 27 okay. and even before that we had talked last week but I had my whirlwind study period so i i was in your exact same shoes in terms of drinks i had the only thing i had maybe was a wine atlas but that's because i like geography and i just wanted to know like where places were right so
2: do you keep like an index of like all the wines you've tried and like do you do you have like a running notebook of things that you tried and like what they taste like and things like that how does that kind of process go for you
1: i should i take i tend to take pictures of them and then i would write I have my like my little wine Instagram where I would kind of post those things for a while. I've kind of been slacking on that, but no, it's more of a mental, a mental Rolodex. I've had my buddies have given me tasting notebooks over the years. And when you, when you're out and you just taste so often, it's kind of hard to bring it with you at all the time, like all the time. And also if you're, I find for me, at least if I'm taking notes, like I love wine and like it's part of my like enjoyment of stuff. Right. So like, if I take notes all the time, then it feels like it becomes work. So sometimes I like to purposely like go off and taste and enjoy. And then other times it's like, oh, this is really focused tasting and I'll I'll take notes. So and
2: now is there like a competition like setting around like wine tasting and things like that? I feel like there's probably is some sort of like see how many wines you can identify from a certain region or things like that. Have you done anything like that in your lifetime?
1: No, no, like so there are a lot of competition competitions. They're mainly like sommelier competition competitions. There are more is like the certifications that people go through. So okay. like the, the quartermaster sommelier is one side for people who want to work in restaurants with master sommelier being the top. And then the other side, that focuses more on wine business. These are the two big ones. There are other ones out there too. There's the wine and spirits education trust, which I'm doing my diploma there now. And then okay. knock on wood, if I pass, I'll apply for the MW program. So those aren't really competitions per se. The sommeliers have a lot more competitions. Cause like when you're working in a restaurant field, I was just talking to L on our team about that too. And it's more like your goal is to be able to explain the wine to a guest, but also you so you need to have like a deeper Rolodex of like producers that, you know, and like, okay. it's not just regional styles and, you know, understanding that um, like, for example, when I'm just like reading this weekend, I'm reading about like New Zealand wine producing regions and yeah like for what i'm studying it's basically like cool this region produces like good to outstanding you know quality wines they're mid to premium priced and they're produced at like this volume like i'm i'm more on like a wine business side as well as the blind tasting and identification whereas like some people all they do is like name this like wine vintage producer and see if i can do it better than other people Uh, yeah
2: and i feel like this kind of rewarding within itself to kind of one, get all those certifications and diplomas that you're working on and also be able to sit there probably in front of your friends and maybe impress them just a little bit. Just be like, oh yeah, I know what this is. And <laughs> kind of flex that muscle a little bit. I'm sure that's pretty cool. Cause you seem to me, it seems more of a high class skill, if that makes any sense.
1: <laughs> yeah, I guess. Yeah. know my friends were pretty surprised when I passed Cause again, I kind of just like studied by myself in my like room. And then all of a sudden I'm like, guys, I'm a wine expert. They're like, no, you're not like, <laughs> and I'm, I'm like, we, we nah. know you,
2: we know you, Billy, we saw you Tuesday. Yeah. You're not a wine expert. <laughs> yeah.
1: And I, I wouldn't say expert, but I, like, guys, I'm a street by some way. They're like, what? And I was like, no, nah, I did show them. And they're like, oh, so it took them like years to actually realize, like, I knew what I was talking about. And I was like, that's, that's fine. So how did you start your YouTube channel? Let's we'll talk a little bit about that. Now. What, what's it called again? It's called Dill Plays,
2: D-I-L-L, and Space Plays. So that's kind of was like a journey. So when I first got a real job and started making some quote-unquote adult money, I was like really interested in personal finance. And my parents have always been harping investing, investing, investing. I probably had a Roth IRA since I was very, very young. And so I was really into the whole YouTube scene about learning about investing. And I was on YouTube like all the time, just learning about different funds, different strategies to invest, real estate, stuff like that. And so I originally was trying to disperse this information to my friends as well, because there's not a lot of information out there about personal investing and personal finance. And these things aren't taught in school. And so I was telling my friends about it. And so I was like, you know what? I'll maybe make a YouTube channel for personal finance. So I started doing that and did that for maybe three months or so. And you can probably still find those videos on YouTube. They're like some of the very first videos I made. They're not good at all. They're Mm -hmm. horrible. And I was like, you know, this is not as fun as like videotaping my dog, doing some random stuff and Mm -hmm. learning how to edit that way. And so then I was like, you know what, maybe I'll do like some, I'll record myself playing tennis and I'll do some edits that way. Just that'll be a fun way to keep learning how to edit. And maybe that'll make my personal finance videos more exciting in the future. Mm -hmm. And so then I started throwing a camera up and started recording my matches and learning how to use Final Cut Pro and doing all these stuff there. And then I started like, started posting them on YouTube. And I think the third or fourth video I got, what got like a thousand, two thousand views. And Previously in my other channel for my personal finance, I was maybe cracking 100 views, maybe tops. And I was like, okay, I had 100 times more fun editing my tennis videos and putting those up there. And people seemed to really resonate with that as opposed to making these videos about why you should invest in the S&P 500 and what a dollar cost averaging really means and why you need to have an emergency fund. So I was like, okay, let me just shift all my YouTube focus, quote unquote, YouTube focus over to just tennis. And let's make this fun and make this interesting. And I don't know where the name Dill Plays came up with, with, but it just kind of stuck. And now if people around Richmond and tennis community, they always just call me Dill Plays. They don't even call me Dylan anymore, which is pretty cool. But I've been doing that since probably 2019. And I think I've had like well over 120 videos posted already. I try to post once a week. If I'm lucky, I'm making YouTube ad revenue, but nothing to write home about. Like maybe last month, I pulled in like 80 bucks or Hmm. something like that. And I have TikToks, Instagrams that I'll take seven second clips and put some highlights up on Instagram and TikTok and got some more success there on Instagram, TikTok. And so that's fun. And I really try to like not make it so stressful because like when I start putting like time deadlines on myself, like I have to get a video out this week, then I'm sitting there editing my video and I'm more worried about getting it out as opposed to making it the best video that it can be. And so I noticed that my views would start to drop when I was like, just like forcing myself to do work. So now I'm kind of like in this space where I have the free time and I'm motivated, which is... (laughs) <laughs> not often, but it will, we we find the time every now and then I'll, I'll go sit down maybe 30, 40 minutes, start editing just a little bit. And then I'll leave it be, come back edit, leave it be. And really just trying to make it more relaxed. So I just don't put extra stress on myself. I have other things in life that can stress me out, work, family, who knows my dogs. I don't need this other thing that I'm trying to do for fun, be stressful. So I, I've had the better success when and I make it kind of a little bit more, less of a job and more of a hobby. Mm-hmm. I think one of the reasons why people enjoy watching videos like that is because we can watch the professionals play tennis all the time. I mean, they're going to be perfect. They're professional tennis players making millions of dollars. And that's why that's why we watch them on TV. But I think people really resonate with the fact that my level is attainable. It's mm-hmm. not some astronomical level that you'll, even if you work for every single day for 10 years, you're never going to be able to meet like a Roger Federer or like a Novak joke, which like those guys are just insane at tennis. But for these juniors who are like nine, 10 years old, watching my videos, they see me. I went to D3 school. I'm a NTRP 5.0. For those of you who know tennis vernacular, 10 UTR, my level's obtainable for them in 10 years, they couldn't get to my level and they could see that like kind of how real and personal it is. And this is what I do to make that. And so I think just having that human connection is as opposed to like, looking at like a Roger and being like, I'll never be able to be that good kind of thing. I think that's what people kind of really connect with with my videos, at least what I've heard.
1: Yeah, no, I think the approachability is nice. And it's also, I guess you kind of feel like you're building more of like a personal connection with you. Like I I would say like on the personal finance side, there's like must be like millions of people like making videos and you never really want to connect with anybody. Like the main thing there is like, cool. I like your advice. How much money have you made in your life? This one's like, Do I like his personality? Is it fun to watch his videos? Like I'm learning along the way. It's like almost like they get to know you. It's like a friend kind of rather than a, just a tennis coach.
2: Yeah. And and that's, that's another thing. Like people have asked me since I've started doing these videos, like, Hey, would you like to coach my son or daughter? And every now and then I say yes, but. like I said, again, tennis, I want it to be a fun thing, especially after college. I had tennis be a stressful point in my life. Like when you're playing in college and you want to make the lineup and you want to make sure your team wins championships and things like that. It used to be stressful, but now it's like such a place where I can like de-stress and like where I can really just like let out emotions and things like that. And so I try to not take on too many lessons. And I really don't want to be like a tennis coach so much because I don't want to ever have to go to the tennis court and be like, okay, this is work, this is work. And like, I got to do it that way. So I, every now and then I give lessons and things like that, but I really just try to be more of a player myself and just enjoy the process, record some videos. And maybe I can inspire people just by playing myself as opposed to, all right, bend your knees now. All right, follow through, $60 if you please, you know, like <laughs> things like that. So I really, I'm very, very cautious about the time I spend on tennis court, who I spend it with and just really making sure it's like an enjoyable experience for me. If that makes any sense.
1: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I think that's circling it back to to vent here. It's like part of when we want people to join the company, like work life balance, and like having these outside hobbies is is really important. I think everybody in our teams has has something that they like to do. Mine just just happens to be wine. Um, right. Right. <laughs> so I'm kind of nonstop. But to your point, you know. That's why I don't take notes for everything because then it becomes work when you're like right. constantly trying to do stuff outside of outside of work too. So I think that makes a lot
0: of sense.
2: Yeah. Um, and then when I was first interviewing, that was actually a topic that I kept harping on, just trying to understand what the culture was here. And I was like, I just want you guys to understand like nine to five or eight to six, like you guys have me, I'll be a great employee, but... I just didn't want to be in one of those, you always hear startup companies, they're working like 12 hour days every single day. And they're just trying to get things out. And like, of course there's times where that's going to need to happen. Like maybe you're trying to launch something for sure. Totally understand. But I really like the culture where you guys were like, yeah, no, we we work hard during the day and then we're we're good. We're usually off by five. And I, I really like that you guys were, you're focused during the day and then there's no like 10 o'clock, 1030 meetings at night or some crazy stuff like that. Of course, there's outliers, things like that. But I think you guys have a really good culture here. And it, it honestly, I feel like it's going to make people more productive when they know that there's set hours during the day that they're going to be working. And then the rest of the time they have for themselves to de-stress, do their hobbies, things like that. Because a big thing of me was I was not going to be able to like, give up my tennis time for something else. And that hasn't been an issue so far. And everyone's been really, really, really good here.
1: Yeah, well, I'm glad to hear it. Your perspective, but yeah, I, I agree. If you sometimes people do message on the weekends and stuff because they're just excited and they can't stop thinking about. Right, right, up.
2: that's totally fine. <laughs> yeah. but
1: but when they do, you'll get a message sometimes from Nigger Patrick like, "Stop working, like get off." <laughs> and it's like, <laughs> enjoy your weekend. It's like, oh, okay, fine. So you're, <laughs> it's definitely a point of priority here. So, well, awesome. This has been this has been great, Dylan. I appreciate the time, and we'll have to have you back on. Maybe in a few months to see if you still like us.
2: Yeah, right. I'll be like a <laughs> different story. I've quit tennis. You guys have stressed me out. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> it's been great so far. And Billy, really, thanks for having me on the podcast. I appreciate it.
1: Yeah, of course. All right. Talk to you soon. Bye. So that was our quick touch base with Dylan Sykes, our newest member of the Vent team. And now we're on to our interview with Nick Jackson, master of wine. He's written the book Beyond Flavor and now Beyond Flavor, the second edition. Which is a really interesting book, kind of about blind tasting, with looking at structure rather than you know necessarily flavor or aromatic, something that people always take into account. So, yeah, listen, it's been it was a really interesting conversation, and I I hope you enjoy our interview with Nick Jackson. Well, hi Nick, thanks for joining us.
3: Thank you, Billy. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me.
1: Yeah, so so I would have given a little preface before this, but really excited to have Nick Jackson here. I I've read his first book, Beyond Flavor, and then noticed on Instagram, I started following you right after that book. And then I noticed that the new book had come out and I was preparing I still am preparing for my WST diploma tasting exam. So couldn't have been a better time. I reached out to Nick and he was gracious enough to join us. So we're excited to have you. And yeah, we're looking forward to kind of hearing about how you got into discussing wine and, and its structure, its
3: flavor and how we discuss wine today. Yeah, thank you. And I, I think that the WST diploma is a great moment to kind of if you haven't seen any of the work I've done before, it's a great moment to have a first look. It's certainly appropriate for that kind of level of student.
1: Awesome, yeah. No, I, I appreciated that in, in the early sections of the the new book. You basically said, you know, if you don't if you don't know that Pinot Noir is a a cool climate thin skin varietal, then you probably shouldn't be reading this book.
3: So, <laughs> yeah, I, I just didn't feel the need to do yet another, you know, fifty to one hundred page intro into winemaking and viticulture and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> Quite a few <laughs> other people have done that already. So,
1: nice. Yeah, and we'll, we'll get into how you talk about wine more too. But my other favorite early line in that book was, Sauvignon Blanc without acid is pointless, which I also thought was.
3: <laughs> I don't have many jokes in the book, but people always remember them. Maybe I should have tried to make it more humorous. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, yeah, could you give us a little background
1: on, you know, when you, you're an MW, so maybe like when you passed your MW and kind of what you, you're
3: currently doing in wine, aside from writing? Sure. So I became a Master of Wine in 2019. I've been studying for that since I guess 2015. Before that, like you, I did the WSET diploma. I I started my wine career in London working at Sotheby's in the auction department. And then in 2012 I came over to the to the US, where Sotheby's had just at that time opened up a retail division in their headquarters in New York. And I was there for six years. Most of which time I was the buyer for the retail store. Being a buyer is really a fantastic job. It's a it's a great you you understand the industry from the inside, I think. When you're a salesperson, you sort of are aware of what products you have available to sell and all that. But when you're a buyer, you know where they come from and how they got there and why you make the choices you make in stocking those items. So that was a fantastic education for me. And so, right around the time I became a master of wine, I I left Sotheby's beginning of 2019. And since then, I've been working for myself. I do do a little bit of the education stuff, like you said, mostly today to do with the book, an offshoot from the book. So, you know, seminars, classes, whatever people need. But really, I do two things I do private client advisory, working with, you know, high net worth individuals, managing their collections, advising them what to buy, what to drink, what to sell and things to do with service, restaurant wine list, travel. So I try and help people out with that. And then in addition, this year, I just started importing wine into my now home state of Florida. And so I import small family European wineries and sell them to Florida's restaurants and retailers.
1: Oh, wow. That's really interesting. I think maybe at the end here, we'll circle back on to some of the, the clientele and the higher net worth individuals, what they're kind of looking for as collectors, because we've had a few come on here and it'd be interesting to get from the you know, the sales side point of view. But I, I think we've kind of and you kind of touched on this almost already is it would it'd be interesting to discuss how people describe and talk about wine. Your book describes wine in a certain way, critics and other basically people scoring wines, talk about it in a certain way. And then there are the educational side. And I've tried to explain to a bunch of my friends because I started out taking the CMS certified exam, what the difference between how sommeliers talk about wine and maybe somebody else in, in your position or the WSET students who want to go more down the business side of things talk about wine. So maybe we just take a start at the highest level. And how do you think most people talk about wine and how should they kind of start thinking about wine in a different way?
3: Well, I mean, I have to say, in all humility, I wasn't, you know, trying to redesign the language of wine with the book. But it is also true that I did come from a point of frustration about I wasn't thinking so holistically in terms of the whole way the world describes and talks about wine, but especially in in the education sphere. My basic thought is that wine education for professionals has really been mainstream since approximately the year two thousand. You know, obviously it did exist before, but it was a bit of a minority sport. But since then, organizations like CMS, uh, WSET, uh, the IMW have really expanded and reached considerably. The growth of WSET in China and the US has been pretty remarkable, and these huge new markets for them have really spread their gospel far and wide. Now, as a Master of Wine student, I had gone through the WSET path and uh, i remember you tell me if this has changed but i remember when i was doing it in 2012 2013 there's a diploma level you had to name you know five i think it was fruits or aromas or flavors Mm. and so i got used to doing that and that was that was fine and uh, i did that for the you know the blind tasting portion of the diploma exam and it was fine and i passed and you know you move on but when i got to mw level i realized that while that was a a nice and attractive way of describing wine it didn't necessarily help you to identify the wine it didn't help you with what was really in the glass why should this be so don't we know for instance that you know Cabernet Sauvignon smells like blackcurrant and Sauvignon Blanc or it's, it's very herbaceous this kind of thing and in theory we do know that but in fact there are so many exceptions that the rule becomes almost redundant so i got very frustrated with trying to identify wines for the purposes of a blind tasting through aromas and flavors so what i really decided was there was a need for a more reliable consistent method than relying on flavors and aromas alone which is where my approach came in i i let's come back to this point because i think it's actually the most interesting point because it's the bigger one but it's a bit of a tangent right now which is that what i thought was just questions about wine education and how people should pass blind tasting exams actually as you've hinted at has sort of taken on a life of its own and a lot of people are now discussing the kind of topics i propose in the context of the whole way that we talk about wine but that wasn't my original ambition
1: Wow. yeah now that that makes a lot of sense and and the more i've gone gone kind of through my studies i've kind of discovered the same thing i mean especially with climate Changing the way it has there, certain regions and wine making styles can actually bring out you know a ton of different flavor notes and aromas that you know really could be anywhere. So it resonated well with me, and that made a lot of sense. Something else that resonated a lot with me, and well, you we will come back to what you're saying and how the, the broader conversation about wine is there, but is the the quality component as well? Tasting not only to identify the wine, but identifying that level of quality within. That's something certainly we didn't really focus on as much in the the CMS track. When I was doing that line, I was more just figuring out where it is and how can you sell it best to the your table. Can you talk a little bit more about the importance of kind of quality, I guess, and and not necessarily the importance, but you know the difference between what you consider you know lower tier or more of a simple wine and then maybe like the top tier ones.
3: Yeah, and let me preface that conversation with my very basic critique of these approaches which emphasize describing aromas and flavors, which is they're very good at describing a wine and less good at understanding a wine. It seems to me that in education, we should be teaching people to understand something rather than just how to describe it. And so the quality discussion fits into that as well, because if we're simply describing the outward attributes of a wine, how it appears to us readily, we may not be understanding its true quality and why the guest in the restaurant should choose this bottle over another similarly priced bottle. Essentially, I think that people really don't choose wine on the basis of its aromas and flavours. You know, we live in a a world where we can, if we really want strawberries, we can buy strawberries and they're going to taste much better than pretending a, a wine tastes like strawberries, which it doesn't. And, you know, as far as quality goes, that clearly is something much more influential. To say that I want a wine that's better than another one is a much more profound, and meaningful statement than saying I want one that smells of strawberries rather than raspberries. Uh, and I, 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 I am not, I'm not criticizing too much. I don't think the, the educational boards on this front, because I think they are really beginning to put quality front and center increasingly, and that has been a change in recent years.
1: That makes a lot of sense. I know from from my side of things, just talking about quality and trying to explain to friends over time, like why certain wines are more expensive than others, aside from just winemaking and fruit costs and all that has been, has been an interesting thing. And I've seen some of my friends kind of progress through that. So I guess moving back a little bit to where you were before, do you want to, we keep referring to kind of your approach and, and your intention not being changing the way we talk about wine, but maybe let's give a foundation of kind of the key components you, you discuss in white wine and, and red wine and the kind of, We'll talk about how that kind of broadens out the conversation.
3: Yeah, so essentially my approach sort of relegates flavors and aromas to one side and really puts the focus on the structure of a wine. I'd always heard in my studies this, you know, this idea of tannin structure in red wines. I think that phrase is familiar to most people who know even a little bit about wine. And then the more I I tasted wines blind, the more I realized that different varieties have got quite different tannin structures. You know, tannin, a drying sensation in your mouth. We feel it in almost all young red wines. Of course, there are some which show more tannin, some less. But I realized that you could actually put a bit more flesh on the bone of these descriptions. And that certain types of tannin had a different kind of grain or quality or texture to them, in addition to being a higher or a lower level. And then the final thing I realized is that different varieties, you experience the tannin in physical different places in your mouth and so uh, when i put these three together you know the, the quantity or the level of tannin typical of a grape variety although of course it can always vary by climate or vintage or winemaking decisions the quantity or level of tannin the type or the texture of tannin and then the location in your mouth where you feel the tannins if you sort of go through those three for each variety major red variety that you taste you begin to realize that there are quite big differences between them so what I set about doing in part of my MW studies was to try and formalise these descriptions for each important red variety, the kind of varieties that would show up in an MW exam. So at least if I was wrong, I wouldn't be wrong because I would misidentified on the day between the difference between a strawberry and a raspberry, but because I'd, I'd, I hadn't got my assessment of tannin correct. So that concept of tannin had always existed in my mind. I just developed it a bit further, the idea of tannin structure. But acid structure in white wine was not something with which I was I had any kind of history. I just heard someone, one of my fellow NWs use the phrase acid structure one day in a tasting. And uh, it was, yeah, as I say in the book, it was a light bulb moment for me because I realized that you could do a similar assessment of structure in white wines as you could with tannins in red wines. Now, it's a bit more esoteric talking about acid structure in whites, but what it really comes down to is you know a couple of things are the same. The level of acidity you know, Sauvignon Blanc or Riesling are going to have more acidity in general than you know a Gewürztraminer or another warm southern variety, Grenache Blanc, for instance. And the the type or the texture of acidity, you know, I often think about Sauvignon Blanc acidity being very spiky or sharp or jagged. It kind of feels like it's attacking your mouth uh, in little bursts or spikes. Whereas something like I don't know, like a a Riesling acidity is very steely. It almost seems to sort of glint with light. So the level and the type or the texture of acidity are kind of similar to the level or type or texture of tannins. And then I, I guess I came up with this idea for the third category, which is probably the one that intrigued most people when they first read the book, the first edition, a couple of years ago when it came out, which is this concept of the shape of acidity. That means that in many wines, you feel the acidity, your mouth perceives the acidity at different levels during the time the wine spends in your mouth. So some wines, you feel the acidity a lot at the beginning, and then it just gradually decreases. Some have got peaks and troughs, more or less. And then so you've got to kind of imagine, with a bit of an imaginative leap, that you can track these things as if on a graph, and then you can see the way they behave. And then according to the shape of the of the graph, then you can apply a kind of label to it. So, you know, the most famous example from the book, one that people come up to me almost in the street and tell me they identify with this is this Chenin Blanc, the Chenin Blanc, which I describe as a crescendo. When you put a, uh, a Chenin Blanc wine in your mouth, it feels surprisingly soft to begin with. But if you hold the wine in your mouth for five seconds, which is what I recommend, then the acidity is perceived increasingly intensely so so much so in fact that you have to spit or swallow after a few seconds so it crescendos it gets louder, the acidity from beginning to end And that's the the crescendo is the shape of the Chenin blanc acidity
1: that's something that i don't know if i just didn't pick up on it well enough in the first book but the second book resonated with me is the acid structure you're looking for it while the the wine's in your mouth whereas with the tannin kind of it comes after you spit or swallow and you kind of perceive it a little bit more there the one one I do have to ask before we move on is the, and I, I think I need to hold it longer in my mouth. I guess when I'm thinking about this, but is the roller coaster for Grüner? That's the one that always stood out to me. Yep. Have you have you found that in? I mean, I, I was reading your descriptions from the different areas, but like, so you that that roller coaster holds true whether it be like a, a random Oregon Grüner as well as the Austrian Grüners and some of the other ones that you've had.
3: Well, I think one thing that. Uh... I mean, Green, you know, I'm not criticising anyone for growing Gruner in in Oregon, but really Gruner does take Mm -hmm. a life of its own in Austria, you know, where, where it originates from, as so many of these classic European varieties do. They just have such a strong identity when they're in their classic regions of origin. And this isn't sort of by coincidence, by the way, it's because over centuries and centuries, people found that these areas gave the strongest expressions of the variety. In many regions outside Europe, we just don't yet have the history to know. We haven't experimented enough to find out what's going to be successful. Anyway, so Gruner, but I think the thing about Gruner, so this shape, this for people who are not familiar, I come up with this crazy idea of the roller coaster of acidity in Gruner, which is that the acidity is quite soft to begin with, then goes up quite quickly and then drops off almost immediately. So there's a peak and then a big trough, and then it comes up again on the other side and another big peak right when you spit or swallow. But one of the reasons why that shape is so pronounced in at least an Austrian Gruner is because of the quality of the acidity, the type of the acidity, which is in Gruner is very, very tangy. It's almost got this kind of this peppery bite. People always talk about pepperiness with Gruner, but they think it's a flavor and maybe it is a flavor. But I would argue, in addition, that it's a texture. It's this kind of reverberative quality within the mouth. It kind of bounces around like a ball in your mouth. And uh, I think it's that tanginess that really accentuates the roller coaster shape that allows you to perceive it very clearly
4: is, is, do, do you consider your your method to be more or less rel- relatively subjective than maybe like the w set model you know distinguishing between strawberries and raspberries as more subjective and more difficult than something like de- determining the shape? of acid in the mouth or, or tannin structure or something like that.
3: This is something which I address in the, at the beginning of the second edition about how to interpret the book as a whole. And what I argue in that is I'm proposing a methodology of tasting and the entire book is the outworking of the methodology, me applying the methodology to various different varieties. And what I say is you may end up disagreeing or not being able to identify with my descriptions but I think if you at least do the hard work of going through the methodology, then you will become a better taster. Whereas I think that if you do the hard work of identifying between all sorts of different fruits, it just means you've got a very good vocabulary of fruits and vegetables.
4: Yeah. Yeah, I just I just ordered the second edition. I have a flight this week, so that, that'll that be my task.
1: <laughs> he's going yeah. to I was going to say he's go going to Santorini, so he's going to get his hands on experience with some this year to go.
3: I mean, Sicco is really a fantastic example of 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 my kind of my kind of methodology working pretty well in a way that I don't really think that traditional sort of descriptions of aromas and flavors can really do justice. A from Santorini is a massively structured white wine, one of the most in Europe, with huge levels of phenolic content, which has a bit of bitterness to the wine. With high levels of acidity, an almost complete absence of interest in fruit flavors. You know, fruit is completely shoved to one side in favor of saltiness and smoky minerality. All this stuff. So, I think that's a it's a great it's uh, a great You're wine. Make, to, uh, making me really test. excited now.
4: <laughs> I have to. Yeah, I I my, my flight's out on Thursday, and Amazon was going to ship it on Friday. I so I had to rush it so I get here Wednesday <laughs> before I left.
1: Yeah, no, I I agree 100% with not to get sidetracked by a Assyrtiko, but I I'm happy you referenced Jim Berry's Assyrtiko. I I did I worked at vintage in Australia and went up to his winery and, and got one of those and I actually um, shared it with some Australian friends next to a Greek one. And like basically if you tell somebody about the wines beforehand and you're just like, well, it's a high acid, you know, wine with maybe some citrus notes or like, you know, it's hard to describe the smoky, the the other notes that kind kind of come along with the Santorini wines and try to using their like Australian vocabulary, which was a little, a little different for whites, especially as well. It was interesting to draw that parallel. So Brady's in for a treat. Something I wanted to ask about is thinking about from the critical lens and knowing what that means for sometimes for investment or our you know higher end wine clientele. Do you think that critics have their own structural method i mean there are certainly certain vintages and certain styles that certain critics like more but do you think they're kind of looking at it from this lens of it checks you know these kind of structural boxes i'm going to give it more marks or something
3: i think for the best critics yes i think you can see the also rounds when they're still stuck in the world of fruit fruit and veg i mean the classic example here is william kelly now you know, the world of, of critics right now is in remarkable flux. We going to date ourselves in this conversation because we're having this conversation in 2022. As you know, there has been a proliferation of critics, independents, writers, all of which charge for their services, a bit like, you know, having deciding that having a cable bundle was too expensive and then you end up paying more for all the individual streaming services. That's mm-hmm. the difference between the Parker era and where we're at now. But the there won't be half as many critics in five years' time as there are now. The attrition rate's gonna be quite high. The the you know, this is a whole conversation, but the, the 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 role of the critic in the wine ecosphere is is very much in question right now, what they exist for. But In the old school of criticism, simply being a fantastic taster and a great writer and giving a very clear perspective on which wines are better than others and which wines one should buy and being able to justify your reasons, it's obvious to me that William Kelly is top of the tree. People who don't know him, he is the wine advocate writer for Burgundy, famously, where he lives, but now also Champagne and Bordeaux. My own... Take is that after Parker retired, we had a sort of a general mutual agreement among people that there wouldn't be a single replacement for Parker, that everyone, all these proliferating voices. So you choose which person you wanted for Italy or, you know, which person you wanted for Bordeaux or whatever. But, uh, you know, Kelly has now cornered the market for these three unbelievably important fine wine regions and is doing a, a fantastic job with them. So I think people haven't quite realized that. We really do, in my opinion, have a new Parker in our, on our hands here. And the market hasn't fully priced in the importance of William Kelly because it's been distracted by the white noise of various other ever-proliferating critics with lesser or greater credentials. But one of the reasons I think he is so good is because he is almost obsessive about structure. Of course, he doesn't discuss it in the same ways that I do, which is a way really more geared towards you know wine students and education. But for instance, take um, white Burgundy, a very complex and frankly controversial wine, given its history over the last twenty-five years. Particularly in the era of, I would say, two thousand five to twenty fifteen, not just white Burgundy but Chardonnays all around the world had this had this flirtation with, you know, what you might call the lightness of being, this ever increasing attempt to make these very flimsy, pure, delicate, ethereal whites, and. William Kelly has often talked about, that this is a total betrayal of what both Chardonnay is and of what White Burgundy historically has been and why it's been a great wine. Many of those wines have subsequently failed. They haven't aged successfully. And Kelly's point is that what you need in White Burgundy is structure. Where do you get structure from in a white variety? Yes, through acid, like I talk about, but also, as I emphasize a lot more in the second edition, through what I call phenolic content, what's... The old school wine writers used to call dry extract. It means you know the little particles of solids, you know, from the skins that are allowed to remain in the wine. So these aren't re- totally light wines, but they've got some structure from the acidity and also from the phenolics, which helps the wines not only have a an architecture, a shape in the mouth, but also extends their ageability. And he consistently awards wines with these increased levels of phenolics higher higher marks and recognizes their quality, even if they frankly can be a little austere when they're young. Hmm.
1: Interesting. Keeping on the, the idea of highly rated vintages and structure, have you tasted in in some of the standout wines of standout vintages, like a consistent theme of structure, or are there certain standouts? You know, I don't know if it's like 1982 Bordeaux, that's different than some of the other other vintages, are are any stronger in one realm or do they have this consistent theme of, you know, obviously you need something to be able to age the acids, the tannin structure. But do you find any a differentiation or is it pretty, pretty consistent on, on what is considered a great vintage?
3: This is clearly something which has been a huge change in viticulture culture and winemaking in the last 20 years. But I would say especially since 2010 the awareness of the importance of phenolic maturity in addition to sugar ripeness. The classic example here is 1996 champagne, a vintage which was sort of universally lauded on release as having perfect levels of sugar and perfect levels of acid. But only years and years later did winemakers begin to acknowledge that the phenolics were not ripe, the skins were not ripe, the pips were not ripe, which means that many of these wines, even today, you taste them today, they have have a slight bitterness on the finish of the wines, which upsets the whole balance of these very delicate wines. Mm. 96 Champagne is clearly a vintage, which has under-delivered, whereas 95, which was never so much discussed as has probably eclipsed it now. But I think that since the year 2000, people have become so much better aware of phenolic ripeness that you can We've generally been able to avoid those problems. In fact, paradoxically, the climate change era, especially since, say, 2015, means that this phenolic ripeness is almost always a given, that you have these very sort of lush tannins, very velvety textured tannins, along with the the rich fruit. And so the problem now is almost the reverse, (laughs) right? which is how do you maintain some crunchiness or some vibrancy of the dry elements the structural elements either in your white wine or your red wine if you think about for instance bordeaux in 2021 20, and 22 21 had quite very traditional bordeaux tannins shall we call them which is to say they were quite pronounced in many cases a little a little dry but 20 and 22 we don't know yet about 22 but it appears to be yet another hot vintage it's quite likely that the tannins will be a lot softer and, and riper and readier So you know, 21 is going to be that vintage where 15% of it gets put into the into the previous or the subsequent vintage to try and uh, give both acid and a bit more uh, vibrancy of structure as well. So again, of course, these winemakers are not aware of my you know book, which is really for students. But I do believe I'm on relatively strong ground because these discussions about the overarching importance of structure are, are much more relevant now than ever. Again, a final contrast. I apologise for this long discourse, but you know the sort of the era of big, bold ripeness between approximately 1997 and 2010, which happened all across the world, was really an emphasis on sugar ripeness. Right? Let's mm-hmm. see how how ripe we get these sugars and how plush and rich we can get these flavours. But I think that the pendulum has swung back towards a bit more of a balance. You know, it may mean that we have to. order to get the tannins ripe perhaps we're harvesting it a bit later than you know we'd ideally want but alternatively it might mean that perhaps you harvest a little parcel maybe a bit earlier in terms of tannin because you want to retain the crunchiness and the acidity even if you haven't got the sugar levels and i think that's a very a conversation which is incredibly important and active right now
1: yeah i i certainly see with my friends they don't use the, the term balance, but they're looking for lower alcohols, more acid wh- when they're trying to get into wines. And, and what's weirdly doing it for them is natural wines. They've kind of given up on, not given up, but they're like, oh, traditional wines taste this way, natural wines are this. And I'm like, well, no, what you're looking for is just lower alcohol and good acid and balance. Like You can get that in well normally made wines as well. But on the topic of trends, what what are you kind of we've kind of touched on it, stylistic changes over the past five, six years. What are you seeing in terms of your your clientele that's in, in kind of demand and more of that the high-end importation market, maybe in the restaurants too?
3: Well, I think among the, the trade, there is clearly a demand for wines with clarity, purity, definition, most of which is accompanied by relatively good levels of natural acidity and moderate alcohols. The... The booming market for champagne, for example, I mean, which literally can't keep up with demand. People who are listening to this from outside the US may not be aware we literally can't get champagne in this country. If you want Krug or Dom Perignon and you're a restaurant or a retailer, good luck right now. And it's been this way since a year, a year and a half. It's a pretty crazy situation, but yeah, I mean, what's the point of champagne apart from being celebratory? You know, you read all these articles. Oh, people want to celebrate the end of COVID. Well, really, that's, you know, that's a lot of celebrating. Maybe it's just they want a light, fresh, vibrant, zippy wine, you know, which is a joy to drink every time that you drink it. And so, sparkling wines in general, champagne in particular, is thriving. I think it's also not a coincidence that champagne is perhaps the most exciting region of fine wine right now. Certainly within France, it is. The growers are, are just doing great stuff. They're forcing the Grand marks into being a bit more creative than they have, you know, historically been producing new, interesting products themselves. So I think everyone wants grower champagne. Everyone wants wines with personality. You know, it's always it's funny, isn't it, in the textbooks we always read? oh, the great benefit of you know grand mark non vintage wine is that it's very consistent and reliable and, and all this. Whereas it's like your friends like natural wine. That's the last thing people want anymore. (laughs) You know, they want they want personality, Uh, and so I think Champagne is a good example. I think, I mean, I think that Italy is just undergoing the most enormous renaissance in front of our eyes. Because I wouldn't say you know the marketing of Italian wines has been historically very successful. It's passed some people by, but what I call the neoclassical turn in Italian winemaking is producing wines of incredible purity, of expression of both variety and place, all across Italy. You have that combined with a string of very good vintages, notably 16. The next one probably should be 19 when we get to taste those Barolos and the wines from uh, Tuscany, And just a commitment to, you know, to be proud of their fantastic resources of, you know, native Italian varieties. Not that the Super Tuscans are going anywhere, but just that the indigenous varieties are having their day in the sun. Where else? I would say, you know, a shout out perhaps in vain for a couple of smaller regions. Galicia, and in the border down towards northern Portugal, I import a fantastic Vinho Verde, which makes a mockery of the historical reputation of Vinho Verde as being a flimsy light wine. And in fact, it's very concentrated and salty and serious. And then up in Galicia, the red wines of Galicia are capable of making really fun, interesting wines, low alcohols and red, as well as the... Alberino whites. And finally, a word for an old favorite that gets no love, which is Germany, is not going to set the investment world on fire. But again, people are unaware of what's happening in Germany. They think it's sweet wine. Sweet wine, because of climate change, is becoming increasingly rarer because you can uh, more easily fully ripen your white grapes. So, you know, that enables you to make trocken, dry wines, and fantastic Pinot Noir. It's quite obvious to me that the best German Pinot Noir is the best. Pinot Noir in Europe outside of Burgundy. Virtually none of it gets imported to the States. That's a huge gap in the awareness of a truly great European wine. So dry Riesling and Pinot Noir from Germany, I think, are thrilling right now.
1: Nice. I I have to agree. We we actually had a really decently complex, not decently complex, a really interesting Vigno Verde last weekend. So I know exactly what you're talking about. It was yeah my my friends were impressed it was not what they were expecting but it was good and the lady as she was about to serve it was like this one doesn't have a sparkle or a light you know effervescence to it do you want me to take it back most people get upset i'm like no no like this is what i want <laughs> sorry, um, right? That makes a lot of sense I uh, well Brady do you have any questions i have i've have a couple more on this vein but i feel like i've been asking everything
4: No i mean it's great it's great to be listening and i'm a little bit well a, a decent bit behind Billy in my wine education I finished my W set two this past spring and I'm looking to do my three in the, in the winter time and doubt I'll go as far as the diploma, but you never know. I, I kind of end up being on the side of uh, appreciating fine wine more than Billy. who Billy isn't happy if he's not getting a bottle for nine or $10. And I very rarely am seeking out wines, I guess in that category. My questions would really just be around kind of quick hitting this or that takes in the consumer market from your perspective because i'm just interested in you obviously have this very you know to to the lay person and evolved sense of the differences and complexities between top lines obviously but most people aren't you know debating well you know is it you know uh, am i going to drink pinot noir from burgundy this week or am i going to drink pinot noir from germany this week it's you know much simpler than that yeah so i, I just ask like what's your, your your favorite region right now you think is making Across the board, the top quality wines from $15 to $315. Is there an answer you can give to something like that?
3: Let me reach again for Italy. Yeah. Chianti, Chianti Classico, which has got such a, you know, a sort of mixed reputation. People always think about the sort of baskets and the candles and all that nonsense. People should have another look at Chianti. They want to spend between 16 and $30 for mm-hmm. a weeknight dinner. Unbelievable quality. Not necessarily more than a hundred, but you know, the, the reserve is at 60 or 70 could be good for long-term aging as well. But a single region outside that I'll go to Piedmont, this brilliant new wave of winemakers there, if you're at the lower end, the everyday range, the Dolcettos and the Barberas, delicious Lange Nebbiolos, and then, I mean, still criminally underpriced Barolo Barbaresco. I mean, we're talking about the very, you know, Barolo is the best Italian wine, the most complex, the most age-worthy. And you get the best producers, you know, single vineyard wines for under a hundred dollars. I mean, this is a, a crazy world. So, from that perspective, I think there's still fantastic opportunities in Piedmont for normal drinkers.
1: In- have you been? A- oh god. I was going to say, have you been exploring any Sicilian wines lately? At least here in Los Angeles, they're they're getting pretty widely, you know, distributed.
3: Yeah, I think the issue with Sicilian wines is that. They they're just you know the actual, the bulk, the very you know to have the vines on the very volcanic slopes is more of a limited area than you know all of Sicily which is a huge <laughs> landmass and I think that the best wines the 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 Nerello Mascalese in particular which is an unbelievably good variety very complex and beautiful aroma and all that the number of producers or at least the ones that are imported to the US are relatively small I mean yes if you can find Chi, Girolamo, Russo, Asokushiaro, fantastic, happy days. But there's just not 20 or 30 or 50 producers of these quality of wines. So there's always a bit of a cap on, I think, on how well known those wines can get.
1: That makes sense. Yeah. What were you so, gonna ask Brady?
3: Yeah, what's your what's your favorite
4: region in the US for Cabernet Sauvignon? It's bit extremely difficult, obviously, to find high quality cab for prices that, you know, I think most consumers would want when they walk in the grocery store, or, but there are regions that are producing Cabot, you know, accessible price points at really high quality. Just wondering what your thoughts were on that.
3: Yeah. I, I, you know, I think that if you're in a steakhouse or something, then you might want to reach for Sonoma, any, really anywhere in Sonoma rather than in Napa. I You know, there's quite a lot of good value there. It, it, clearly, they're not the quite as blockbuster style in Sonoma as they would be over in Napa. I think you know a really clearly a very premium region is Santa Cruz above Silicon Valley, but, but you know the, those wines are also expensive as well. But yeah. you know the probably the most famous wine from up there is you know Ridge Montebello, which is 250 bucks or whatever. But for instance, Ridge make an estate Cabernet Sauvignon, which is not nothing. It might be like 60 bucks or something retail. But if people can find that, that is a fantastic example to what Cabernet outside of Napa can look like. Yeah,
4: we've had discussions with, you know, producers from Washington State who are making Cab, who are producing, you know, Syrah, really high quality as well. You know, some some other interesting examples of, you know, guests that we've had on our podcast.
3: Yeah. My, yeah. my basic take on Washington is that Syrah is Washington's grape. Okay. The Syrah of Washington is really a candidate for America's best wine. Uh, oh, excellent, uh, yeah. that, they, that's what I was trying to
4: draw I'm trying to draw that
3: out <laughs> yeah I I think I think Cabernet is is very good in Washington but I think Syrah is fantastic because what mm-hmm. does Washington do it produces basically quite savory structured wines and those things are so good for uh, so good for Syrah I think in a very kind of northern Rome kind of way yeah. and some fantastic producers yeah I agree
1: with that that I didn't my family didn't really grow up drinking wine so I was in college when I kind of discovered the first wine that I can remember. And it was a, a Shiraz Syrah from Washington State. So I'm I'm with you on that. Rounding out here for thinking again for like everybody kind of everyday drinkers or we're more elevated. We have we have some connoisseurs like on not obviously listen to this podcast too, are aspiring. Maybe can we run through a couple of your your top one or two for whites and reds, kind of like what you what they can look for in a wine to kind of show the indicative nature, maybe like you do yeah chardonnay cabernet Sauvignon, obviously you're sending to hit
3: sure chardonnay so i think people always think about well you know one of the reasons why chardonnay is so popular is because fruit is fruit comes easy to chardonnay there's no shortage of fruit it's always there in virtually any climate so plenty of fruit chardonnay's got a fantastic texture of the fruit it's very supple it's very easy so i think put those two things together and you see why chardonnay is successful But what I focus on is the way that the acidity of Chardonnay has got a very, what I call a linear quality. It's like a line, like a horizontal line that runs all the way through the middle of the fruit. What this does in practical terms is it means that the fruit has got a kind of energy or a direction to it. This is important because otherwise, you know, if the fruit just kind of sits there leaden on the palate, it can be a bit heavy or cloying. But Chardonnay has got a, a nice kind of internal energy which propels the wine from the beginning to the end. From the front of your mouth to the back of your mouth, and I think that's what makes you, you know, keep on drinking the wine. So that's how I think about Chardonnay. Riesling, you know, would be the contrast where it's more what I call vertical, which means the the wine actually does sit there on the palate, vertical in the sense of it's like a, a stake pinning down something in place. But why is that a would be a negative in Chardonnay, but it's positive in Riesling? Well, I think because the of the quality of the acidity in Riesling is so vibrant so steely so bright that it illuminates the fruit that surrounds it so it's really like a shard of light just giving life to the whole in Riesling so quite a different experience of the wine on the palate Sauvignon Blanc again is very very different it's a wine where which as I mentioned before has got this kind of jagged spiky sharp acidity which uh attacks the the edges of mouth the, the cheeks and the gums and all that just seems to kind of poke those areas as it expands outwards from the tongue. So there's a real sense of movement with acidity as well. And so you see these three very famous varieties. We've got very clear and strong acid structures, right? And I think, I say this in the second edition, this is one of the reasons why I think they are great for varieties, because they've got that. The varieties which I struggle to describe as well are the ones perhaps with less pronounced structures. But reds, I don't know, a couple of reds. In the second edition, I introduced a new concept, which really goes back to our discussion of the importance of understanding a wine rather than just describing it. And I introduced this concept of construction, not just the structure but the construction of a wine. And what that means is to balance the structural components against all the other elements of the wine, the fruit and the aromas and any winemaking elements to create the, the final product. And to take a wine like Pinot Noir, for instance. Pinot Noir, Pinot Noir has relatively sort of mild levels of tannin. It's not really a wine that you think about too much in terms of tannin, but can often have a kind of silky or velvety tannin, which matches the silky or velvety fruit of the best Pinot Noirs and for which the variety is so famous. But more than that, the everything in Pinot Noir seems to move upwards in the mouth, so famously you know in Pinot Noir you don't just get aromas in the glass which obviously they come out of the glass and upwards to your nose but also the best examples have got a perfume in your mouth both while the wine is in your mouth and after you've swallowed and again that perfume seems to sort of lift up to the, top of the mouth the acidity does the same thing it sort of circles the tongue and the tannins also seem to want to aspire upwards so the construction of Pinot Noir according to my my definitions is this wine of ascent, this wine of always an upward motion. And I think that explains some of what makes Pinot Noir a magical variety when it's it's good. Frequently, it's not. But I think that's what it's trying to get towards, that kind of thing. By contrast, take a more sort of down-to-earth variety like Cabernet Sauvignon. And uh, Cabernet Sauvignon, in fact, is the red wine equivalent of Chardonnay, which is to say that the tannins and the acidity combine to give a very strong sense of direction, of focus. It's a very energetic wine. Cabernet, funnily enough, in spite of its reputation, especially in the US, doesn't actually have that much fruit in the middle of the wine. It doesn't kind of get stuck anywhere. It just keeps on moving. And the tannins are felt around the edge of the gums all the way from the front to the back. And so the tannins, where you feel them, have this kind of sense of movement as they move from front to back. It's always got quite good acidity. Cabernet Sauvignon hasn't got too much fruit that you get stuck in the middle. And so again, it's got the sense of movement from front to back from beginning to end of the experience of the time the wine spends in your palate
1: That all makes a lot of sense, yeah right I think the other line that we might have talked about already when you're the way you elaborate on the Chardonnay makes makes sense and you do it further in the book, but the idea that if it didn't have that acid backbone, it would collapse in on itself and I think we've actually probably seen that in a few really warm California expressions at least that I've had. Well, awesome. This is this has been great. I really appreciate your time. I'm going to have to ask you off air a couple of your your favorite Barolos or Piemonte because I'm going to be heading up there soon. But yeah, thank you so much
4: for your time. Brady, you have anything else? This is great. Yeah, thank you so much, Nick. Appreciate it. No, thank you,
3: guys. Thank you, Brady. Lovely. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you.
0: To check out our current offerings and to sign up for the Vint platform, find us at www.vint.co. That's co. For questions, comments, or feedback on the Vint podcast, please email us at support at vent.co. Vint and VV markets are offering securities pursuant to Regulation A. Our offering circular as amended can be found on the SEC website. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Investments such as those on the Vint platform are speculative and involve substantial risks to consider before investing. We may provide communication that may contain certain forward-looking statements that are subject to various risks and uncertainties. Information provided in any communications, including this podcast, is not legal, business, or tax advice. All prospective investors should consult a legal, tax, or business advisor concerning the subject matter of any communications and any offering.